Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin what is at stake is more than one small country it is a big idea a new world order it's no longer a theory what i'm about to say is fact the secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, geopolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Greetings, oddities. Welcome to another odd cast featuring me, your odd man out. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with me once again. And this week, we're taking back up where we left off last week with Freemasonry's Greatest Hits, Volume 2. And we're going to be looking at some of the shows that we've done in the past on Freemasonry and pulling that in on the second half with the information that we covered on the Shriners. I was going to do a new show on Masonry this week, but I realized last week when I was mixing the show that I have so much more information because I'd actually done more shows on Freemasonry than I'd even realized. And looking back, there's some things that I didn't get right and some authors that I quoted that I'm not sure, looking back in hindsight, that were accurate. So I wanted to take the best of the things that I feel that are accurate and put them in these shows and then start up next week with brand new information. And hopefully the next week we'll get into the roots of Freemasonry, which is Kabbalah. And I think you guys will enjoy that quite a bit. And we'll probably talk about Freemasonry in Israel as well. So I think that you'll enjoy this and get something out of it and hopefully get you set up for the coming shows. So thank you once again for taking the time to hang out with me. Thank you for your patience. And let's just get right to the show. Another little interesting tidbit that I had found out. Freemasons garner another phrase dear to their beliefs known as the Anu Lucius, which is their secret calendar, Anu Lucius, is translated as a year of light, which some people believe began in the year 4000 BCE. Richard Noon writes that Anu Lucius is the legendary date memorializing the founding of the ancient craft masonry in around 4000 BCE, 
A day to that coincides chronologically with the life of Cain, the father of the seven sacred sciences. More importantly, Anna Lucius is the Freemasonry calendar dating back to Freemasonry's year zero, the year God expelled Lucifer from heaven. And that was from Gary Wayne, Genesis 6 Conspiracy, page 495. And while we're on Mr. Albert Pike, who is such an important part of Freemasonry, and I hope you guys are not getting bored with this, I'm going to do several, several episodes on Freemasonry because it's such a, well, it's the mother of all conspiracies, right? But there's so many misconceptions. And I also think if I keep digging, I keep finding new things that I didn't know. And a lot of things people just say and only know just a little bit about it, and then it starts a legend. But in Morals and Dogma, in the part where it says, Grandmaster of all symbolic lodges, if you forward down, he's talking about the degrees and the influence of the degrees on Freemasonry and what happened before, I guess, before he redid the degrees for the Scottish Rite. He says, innovators and inventors overturned that primitive simplicity, ignorance engaged in the work of making degrees, and trifles and gewgaws and pretended mysteries, absurd or hideous, usurped the place of Masonic truth. The picture of the horrid vengeance, the poniard of the bloody head, appeared in the peaceful temple of Masonry without sufficient explanation of their symbolic meaning. Oaths out of all proportion with their object shocked the candidate and then became ridiculous and were wholly disregarded. Alkalites were exposed to tests and then compelled to perform acts, which, if real, would have been abominable, but being mere chimeras were preposterous and excited contempt and laughter only. 800 degrees of one kind or another were invented. Infidelity and even Jesuitry were taught under the mask of masonry. The rituals even of the respectable degrees copied and mutilated by ignorant men became nonsensical and trivial and words so corrupted that it has hitherto been found impossible to recover many of them at all. Candidates were made to degrade themselves and to submit to insults not tolerable to a man of spirit and honor. Hence, it was that practically the largest portion of the degrees claimed by the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite, and before it, the Rite of Perfection fell into disuse, were merely communicated and their rituals became jejune and insignificant. These rites resembled those old palaces in barren castles, the different parts of which built at different periods, remote from one another, upon plans and according to tastes that greatly varied, formed a discordant and incongruous whole. Judaism and chivalry, superstition and philosophy, philanthropy and insane hatred and longing for vengeance, and a pure morality and unjust and illegal revenge were found strangely mated and standing hand in hand within the temples of peace and concord. And the whole system was one grotesque commingling of incongruous things, of contrasts and contradictions, of shocking and fantastic extravagances, of parts repugnant to good taste and fine conceptions overlaid and disfigured by absurdities engendered by ignorance, fanaticism, and senseless mysticism, an empty and sterile pomp, impossible indeed to be carried out, and to which no meaning whatever was attached, with far-fetched explanations that were either so many stupid platitudes or themselves needed an interpreter. 
lofty ideas arbitrarily assumed and to which the inventors had not condescended to attach any explanation that should acquit them of the folly of assuming temporal rank, power, and titles of nobility made the world laugh and the initiate feel ashamed. Some of these titles we retain, but they have with us meanings entirely consistent with the spirit of equality, which is the foundation and the preemptory law of its being of all masonry. So I won't keep going because he just drones on and on, basically says the same thing over and over again. Uh, he likes to think of himself as waxing eloquently, I'm sure, or he did like to think that. But uh, anyway, so it's kind of interesting because I'd never really heard much about that and how basically the Scottish Rite or even Pike was the one to take all that mess of confusion and kind of put it into the Scottish Rite. Because if you talk to people from the Blue Lodges, they just think that the Scottish Rite and the York Rite has no meaning whatsoever. It's just symbolic. But obviously there's a lot more to it. And I think it's very interesting that there's so much confusion. No wonder they can't trace back a lot of their lineage or the origins of their rites. Although depending on which author you read, they do, some do try to take it back and act as if they know exactly what happened. The book Bloodline of the Holy Grail, I think it's Lawrence Gardner who wrote that book, and this guy acts just like he knows everything, every little detail, that you know, dating way back thousands of years ago related to Freemasonry. And I just think that's crazy because if you read other Freemasonic scholars, they say plainly that they didn't know a lot of these things. So there's such a, you know, a, such a contradiction in information out there. But before we get off the Albert Pike subject, I wanted to talk about something that's obviously very controversial, but the name Lucifer. You know, we're talking about Lucifer and the, the two quotes where, you know, one supposedly Pike did not say, and then the other one, I told you and explained that he ripped that off from Eliphas Levi. So what did Pike say about Lucifer in Morals and Dogma? So I looked that up because, you know, I want to get to the bottom of the truth. And Lucifer is mentioned several times in Morals and Dogma, but nothing under the, you know, subject of worshiping Lucifer. He says in one part of it. And again, you have to, I invite you to go ahead and get that copy, uh, a copy of it. Like I said, it's free on Amazon Kindle. If you want to get it there, you can download a free PDF or other form on archive.org. But he says here, the true name of Satan, the Kabbalists say, is that of Yahweh reversed. For Satan is not a black God, but the negation of God. The devil is the personification of atheism or idolatry. For the initiates, this is not a person, but a force. And I'll stop right there for a second and say, we were reading about the Lucifer spirits from the Rosicrucian Max Heindel from his book, Freemasonry and Catholicism. He kept talking about the Lucifer spirits and how the Lucifer spirits through the archangel, the fallen angel, Samael, impregnated Eve, and she bore Cain as his son. And I'm not saying I believe that, but I'm just saying that's what they were trying to say. That's what he was trying to say. So anyway, 
Pike goes on to say about Lucifer, for the initiates, this is not a person, but a force created for good, but which may serve for evil. It is the instrument of liberty or free will. They represent this force, which presides over the physical generation under the mythologic and horned form of the god Pan. Thence came the he-goat of the Sabbat, brother of the ancient serpent, and the light-bearer or phosphor of which the poets have made the false Lucifer of the legend. Okay, so he's talking about Lucifer and how all this legend's been made about Lucifer, and he's now equated as Satan, the devil, right? But there is some controversy about that, even among Christians, and I've heard the author Gary Wayne explain that very well. He's done, I think, two podcasts on that where he talks about nothing but the origins of the name Lucifer and how we got to that and everything, and the difference between Lucifer and the devil. So this is BibleQ.net, and it says, where did the term Lucifer come from? Lucifer is a Latin adjective meaning light bringer. It was used of both the moon and more frequently of the planet Venus, the morning star, the brightest object in the sky just before dawn. This is early in Christian usage. The word became used as a name widely from the Latin of 2 Peter 1 and 9, Lucifer, Oriator in Cordibus Vestris, the morning star arise in your hearts. This was taken as a title of Christ and features in early hymns such as that by 4th century Bishop Hilary of Portier with the line, Tu versus Mundi Lucifer, you are the true light bringer of the world. At the, time, at the same time, Lucifer became a popular Christian name, including of two early bishops. Now, I do remember reading something about a bishop named Lucifer a while back, and it blew my mind. Of course, I jumped all kinds of conclusions, but that was before I had this information here. It says, later Christian usage. A sudden change in the associations of the name came about in the 5th century with increasing reference to another morning star, Latin Lucifer, in the Latin Bible, namely the King of Babylon, in Isaiah 14, 12. I'll see if I can... Uh, actually pronounce this Latin, Quomodo sicidisti de Caelo Lucifer file aurore. This literally is how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And from the context has nothing to do with angels. Isaiah 14, 16 through 17 calls him a man. However, it came to be used as a verse about the devil, and the original usage from 2 Peter 1.19 was largely forgotten. In English Bibles, the word was traditionally left untranslated as a name of the devil. Lucifer, that risedest, early how fellest thou down from heaven. That's the Wycliffe Bible from 1390. And that was pre-King James Version. The King James Version is, how art thou Fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now I'll read the Wycliffe version one more time. Lucifer, that risedest early, how fellest thou down from heaven? Then the King James, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? 
This is modern versions. Now the clock has turned back again to the early Christian understanding of these verses, and modern versions translate the word as morning star in both Isaiah 14 and 2 Peter 1. The comparison to Venus is quite suitable. The king of Babylon was very proud and imagined himself to be a god. He said, I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14, 14, and apparently thought of himself as being in heaven like Venus. Instead, he fell to earth in defeat. Isaiah describes him as a metaphorical morning star appearing bright and elevated, but about to plunge below the horizon and disappear. A similar passage in Ezekiel 28, which is about the king of Tyre, although it is also often incorrectly interpreted as applying to a wicked angel. That's just another reference. And the king of Tyre, actually in Freemasonic lore, was supposed to be the one that King Solomon called, or not called, but he messaged, he sent a message to him to send Hiram Abiff, this grand mighty architect, to come help him build his temple. That's just an aside, but I thought that was very interesting. Now, I'm not telling you what to believe about the term Lucifer. You do your own research, do your own research on all this stuff, and make up your own mind. I'm never telling you exactly what to believe. This is just me looking at information and giving it to you guys, and do with it what you will. I uh, also mentioned in there that I really said a lot in uh, talking about Lucifer, but uh, when uh, Pike was talking about Lucifer, he says, for the initiate, this is not a person but a force, created for good, but which may serve for evil. It is the instrument of liberty or free will. Well, that must be right there where, you know, uh, do what thou will shall be the whole of the law, where Crowley got that, equating free will with Lucifer, which is also stupid to me, because if Lucifer doesn't exist, he's not really even a person or an angel, then your free will is not going to represent Lucifer, except if you're into this dark art stuff. But anyway, that aside, another thing is I've read in the past, I think it was called asktherabbi.com. I'll have to look that up. It's been, I'm talking four or five years since I read this. But I do remember reading that a rabbi, they ask the rabbi how Orthodox Jews look at the devil and they, he said in there that they do not, rep, you know, view the devil as a person, but more like a spirit, kind of basically the way Pike is describing this. And, of course, <clears throat> Orthodox Jews study the Kabbalah, and Pike and many of the other Freemasonic writers talk a lot about how Freemasonry has a lot of Kabbalah in it, or a lot of influence. So that just makes sense. And I remember the rabbi even said in the article, and I'll see if I can find it and put it in, in my show notes, but it, like I said, it's been a long time. But he said that devil can even be looked at as a friend because, you know, when you do something bad, then something bad happens to you, karma or whatever. They don't say karma, but then you learn a lesson from making bad decisions. So I just wanted to put that in there and add that to this whole thing because it fit in there perfectly. Now to change it up a little bit, I was recently reading The Spirit of Masonry by Foster Bailey. And I'll remind everyone that Foster Bailey was Alice Bailey's husband. He was a Freemason. 
Bailey was a co-Mason as far as we know. Uh, we're, we're not 100% sure on that, but we do know that Blavatsky and Annie Besant were co-Masons. Now, this book was published by Lucius Trust, which a long time ago was Lucifer Publishing, and they still run the Library for the United Nations. And a lot of people know the United Nations is a very new-agey group. And so he mentions towards the end here, this is actually a pretty good book if you want to find out about Freemasonry. Um, he mentions towards the end some things that I thought were interesting. He's talking about Sirius, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Albert Pike says that the flaming or the blazing star represents Sirius, the dog star. He says, The spiritual ancient mysteries were brought to our great white lodge, known to non-Masons as the hierarchy from the great white lodge on Sirius. They veil the secret of man's origins and destiny and are symbolically expressed in the rituals of the Masonic degrees. And also say in reference to the last podcast on Q that Bailey mentions the plan, the plan in here quite often in regards to the the brotherhood of man the new age um, he goes on to say though after he's talking about Sirius there the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness held a hint for the masonic craft in the days of operative masonry the building of king solomon's temple holds useful teachings for the speculative mason of today the temple in the heavens not yet built points the way to the next great stage of spiritual masonry. He says, this is worth pondering. Now, a couple pages over, he says, each star in the heavens is a solar system with a light-producing sun and revolving planets. Our solar system in which our Earth exists is one of them. There are millions of stars, but among them, only the star Sirius has a direct link with the Earth and with humanity. Much was known to the ancients about Sirius, now largely lost, but recoverable. Our modern exploration of outer space is helping us here. Our planet is affected by other planets in our solar system, which in turn is affected by other solar systems. We are learning that it is a scientific fact that the stars affect the human kingdom on Earth and therefore us. The interrelatedness of all objects in the universe is now recognized as is the interrelatedness of all nations on our little spaceship Earth. We all are one. Our planetary logos cooperates with other planetary logoi in our solar system, and our solar logos cooperates with other solar logoi, and especially with Sirius. Here, therefore, are a few facts about Sirius to stretch our minds and help us grow. According to Webster's Dictionary, Sirius, often called the dog star and the star in the east, is the brightest star in the heavens and is located in the constellation Canis Major. The solar system Sirius is both larger and older than our solar system and has a much greater influence in the cosmos. There is a direct magnetic link between Sirius and our solar system and to Mercury, Mars, and Venus. Masonic tradition has it that the first three degrees of our Blue Lodge are equivalent to the first degree of Freemasonry on the star Sirius. Skipping a few lines, he says, Where did Masonry originate? 
because the star Sirius is older than Earth, masonry could have existed there long before our Earth masonry began. By implication, there is human life on Sirius, and research in outer space now indicates that the type of life we call human is not limited to this planet. Both religion and science are less dogmatic about this than of old. He says, Our solar system receives energy from three main sources. There are three great waves of energy which sweep through our solar system, and one of which comes from Sirius. In closing, he says, There are seven paths of progress open to the man who has learned all that human evolution on Earth can teach him. One is the path to Sirius. He arrives in the consciousness as a perfected human. It follows that there is therefore a type of life on Sirius which includes the essentials of human life on Earth. This includes masonry, and he finds that great spiritual fraternity already there. Life on Sirius is therefore the destiny of the majority of humanity, who then, if they are Masons, continue as Masons. So there is Foster Bailey on Sirius. Well, what did General Pike say in Morals and Dogma about Sirius? Actually, quite a lot. Sirius is in there a whole bunch, but I'll just mention a couple of things. He says, The ancient astronomers saw all the great symbols of Masonry in the stars. Sirius still glitters in our lodges as the blazing star. He also says in another part where he's talking about the death of Osiris, when Isis found the body where it had floated ashore near Biblios, a shrub of Erica or Tamarisk near it had, by the virtue of the body, shot up into a tree around it and protected it, and hence our sprig of acacia. Isis was also aided in her search by Anubis in the shape of a dog. He was serious or the dog star, the friend and counselor of Osiris, and the inventor of language, grammar, astronomy, surveying, arithmetic, music, and medical science, the first maker of laws, and he who taught the worship of the gods and the building of the temples. But you can go and check it out yourselves, because like I said, there's quite a bit about Sirius, and you know, you've got a lot of reading to do if you want to check that out. So, take it a different direction here. I was looking in a book, gosh, this must have been a couple of months ago, just uh, kind of browsing this ebook that I found on archive.org by an author named Kenneth Grant. And if you're not familiar with him, he was an occultist, uh, he was a Crowley follower, uh, his mentor was Aleister Crowley. He started his own version of a cult with a take on Crowley's OTO called the Typhonian Order or the Typhonian Ordo Templi Orientis. He wrote a book called Aleister Crowley and the Hidden God. And here he says something peculiar that stuck with me and I wanted to read it to you guys and let me know what you think about it. The connection between the OTO and Orthodox Freemasonry was described by Crowley as follows. So far as the OTO is at all concerned with Masonry, it is that the whole of the knowledge of the 33rd degree of the reduced rite is incorporated in the first seven degrees of the OTO. But the degrees superior to the seventh of the OTO contain a vital 
magical secret. The Paris working, or the Opus Lutetanium, describes a series of magical workings which Crowley undertook with the assistance of Frater Lampada Trotum, where it says in parentheses, the poet Victor Newberg. They used a homosexual formula, which Crowley later incorporated into the Sovereign Sanctuary as part of the 11th degree of Thelema, at which the whole of masonry of any rite certainly hints, though it is nowhere openly disclosed. Now I'm going to read that one more time, and just want you to think about it and tell me what you think. They used a homosexual formula, which Crowley later incorporated into the Sovereign Sanctuary as part of the 11th degree of Thelema, at which the whole of masonry of any rite certainly hints, though it is nowhere openly disclosed. You know, when I first got into looking into this stuff, I would see things here and there that said that the highest degree or the higher degrees you... Um, had to engage in sodomy. Of course, this has been absolutely denied by Masons, uh, as you would think they would, and it may not be true. But I think this is peculiar, written by Kenneth Grant, who is not an adversary or an enemy of Masonry whatsoever. He's, you know, he's a, an occultist, and, uh, you know, the Typhonian Order was taken off of the OTO, which was taken off of masonry. So I don't see why he would have a reason to um, say that if it were not true. He goes on to say, the OTO became the first officially Masonic body and the first greater order of antiquity to accept the law of Thelema. Crowley reorganized and remodeled the grades above the fourth degree, the first four degrees retain their traditionally Masonic character, although with modifications to obviate infringements of the rules and regulations of Orthodox Freemasonry. So anyway, yeah, that was pretty interesting, huh? Um, I'll just leave that there and, uh, you know, people can uh, decide for themselves what he meant. Now, in another section in this book, he talks about a Crowley paper when he speaks of masonry. He says, in a paper entitled The Elixir of Life in 1914, Crowley wrote, Although I was admitted to the 33rd and last degree of Freemasonry so long ago as 1900, it was not until the summer of 1912 that my suspicion was confirmed. I speak of my belief that behind the frivolities and convivialities of our greatest institution, lay in truth a secret and ineffable and miraculous potent to the control of the forces of nature, and not only to make men brethren, but to make them divine. But at a time I speak of, a man came to me, a man of those mysterious masters of esoteric Freemasonry, who are like its eyes and its brains, and who exist in its midst unknown, often even to its acknowledged chiefs. This man had been watching my occult career for some years and deemed me now worthy to partake in the greater mysteries. With these, he's proceeded to acquaint me, and my life has since then been devoted principally to their study and practice. 
I say practice as to no mere intellectual attainment is at issue. On the contrary, it would be simple for me to communicate the knowledge of the principal secret in three words if I were not bound alike by my oath and by my natural good sense. It is the practical application of the secret that demands labor, intelligence, and something more. In my case, the two and a half years of research on these lines have not sufficed to make me perfect, only to make me ready to bet about three to one that in any given operation I shall succeed. This reference is to Freemasonry. The reference is to Theodore Roos, or Freighter Merlin, from whom Crowley took over the headship of the OTO. In the manifesto of the most secret order of which my master is the head, it is written, In its bosom repose the great mysteries. Its brain has resolved all the problems of philosophy and life. It possesses the secret of the stone of the wise. We get back to the stone. The elixir of immortality and of the universal medicine. Moreover, it possesses a secret capable of realizing the world-old dream of the brotherhood of man. And there you have the New World Order once again, that great utopia. I don't mean to backtrack, but while I'm in this Kenneth Grant book here, looking around, I see Sirius, the mention of Sirius, which we just talked about, the star, the dog star, the blazing star in Freemasonry. He says here, Order of the eye of Set, the sun behind the sun, represented astronomically by the star of Isis, which is Sothis or Sirius. The constellation of which Sirius was the chief star was once named the Phoenix. This was the secret name of Baphomet as the supreme head of the OTO. He assumed the god form of this bird, an emblem of the Sothic year or cycle, because it had reached the meridian attained supremacy at the moment of the rising of Sirius or Set. I don't know. Some of this stuff, you know, is uh, pretty complicated, and I just never enjoyed reading Crowley stuff. Same with Blavatsky. But, uh, you know, sometimes it helps to read these things and kind of get their views and what they really thought instead of listening to what other people claim they thought. Some personalized their identification with Lucifer, such as Shriner Bob Rosland here. Now, did you just say that you are Lucifer? I am Lucifer. Okay, define Lucifer for me. Pure, virtuous, wholesome, innocent individual that's out to help people. Lucifer is? Yeah. Luc say that again. Lucifer is a pure, holy... Virtuous. Virtuous. Now, see the Lucifer that God created? That's the same one. Oh, man, this is great. I'm going to put this on the Internet. Oh, uh, God bless you, Amen. brother. There's a couple more terms that came out of Freemasonry that came to my attention. The term third degree, you're giving me the third degree. I've read in several books now that that came out of Freemasonry, which makes sense. Also, the term, and when I say this, it's going to make total sense as well, journeyman. Journeyman, like you're studying to be uh, an electrician, a journeyman. So that came out of Freemasonry as well. Now, here is something that I did not realize. When we hear Freemasonry lodges or a Freemasonry lodge, we just think about, you know, it's kind of like their church, right? It's their house of the temple. Well, 
the original reason they called it a lodge was because not only did they meet there and have their, you know, their, their meetings and their, do their rituals and all that stuff. And everything back in the day, of course, was even more hidden than it is today. But Freemasons had to do things under the radar, right? Because they would be called witches or, you know, people would say that they're into black magic or something because they mix all these different religions together and do some pretty weird stuff. But, um, or weird stuff to the normal lay person, right? Putting these costumes on and and memorizing all this stuff and, and talking about all this lore. It's, it's pretty odd to a regular person. But that aside, so when a Mason was running from something, perhaps could have been running from the law, it could have been running from the church, it could have been running from angry in-laws, it could have been running from anything, right? He would need a place to go, a place to stay in the next town or two towns over, what have you. And so he would need lodging for the night. And so according to John J. Robinson, or Robeson, excuse me, uh, the guy that wrote Born in Blood, they had that term lodge because he would go to another lodge, be taken in, sometimes given food, sometimes given water, sometimes given money even, and always given shelter. So one Mason could go from one town to five towns over. He could go to another country if he had the means and be taken in and given lodging for the night or for several nights if need be, maybe even given money. So it all goes back to the oaths that they make towards one another. And we can get into, and we'll do that in the next episode that I do about Freemasonry, we'll get into the oaths and the good and bad about making oaths in secret societies. I think we can all imagine making a promise to a friend is, of course, not a bad thing. But if you make these oaths, and in the, in the, back in the day it was blood oaths. Now, some say that it's no longer blood oaths. I don't know. I can't prove it one way or another. But making these oaths to someone to no matter what, no matter what, even in terms of murder, you will hold them up, lie for them, stand by them, whatever it takes. You can see how that could be a pretty dangerous thing. Let's look at the oath of a Shriner. And this is from Mason Busters. High priest and prophet takes up the bowl. Most noble counsel of the Inquisition, now in testimony of the justice of our course, let us in this maiden's blood seal the alliance of our bond of secrecy and silence. And let this day's bloody work in the deepest recesses of every noble's heart be buried. And, you know, that kind of reminds me of the legend, which the Shriners deny, and I can't prove, but that these Fez hats back in the day, coming from the Middle East, were actually white. And when they killed the Christians in these battles, they would dip their hats in the blood. Now, this may be total BS. It kind of sounds like BS. But you never know. There's been some strange, strange things come out of history. Anyway, 
I think that the Moors may have invented that fez hat. I don't know for sure, but it seems like the Moors go back much farther than the Shriners, and there's definitely some links there. We can look at another oath, and this is from phoenixfreemasonry.org here of the Shriners. It says here, From the shrine, or the ancient Arabic order, nobles of the mystic shrine, in willful violation whereof I may incur the fearful penalty of having my eyeballs pierced to the center with a three-edged blade, my feet flayed, and I be forced to walk the hot sands upon the sterile shores of the Red Sea until the flaming sun shall strike me with livid plague, and my Allah, the God of Arab, Muslim, and Mohammedan, the God of our fathers, support me to the entire fulfillment of the same. Amen, amen. And amen. Another interesting thing, you know, you have the Kaaba at Mecca, and you know, it's the big black box or the black cube of Saturn, you know, that kind of thing. And so the Muslims will walk around it, I believe, six times. And there's a pretty interesting background to that. So I suggest you check that out yourselves. But it seems like the black cube or black box or black stone symbolism. And think about black rock investments or black stone, which is a subsidiary or used to be a subsidiary of black rock. And of course, black rock works directly with the Federal Reserve, which should be illegal. And you think about black cube, the Israeli intelligence organization or ex-Israeli intelligence guys who started this organization. So the cube, the stone symbolism, the philosopher's stone symbolism is there. And it's also in Freemasonry. And it's also in the Shriners, right? So kissing the black stone is part of the ritual. And I can read you the text of the kissing of the black stone in that part of it. It says, When Ishmael and his father Abraham built the national shrine near the place where the tabernacle of clouds stood, an angel presented them with a dazzling white stone, which they inserted in the wall of the temple. And each year, the worshipers would journey to Mecca to kiss this stone. Today, so many have kissed the stone that it has now become black and is known as the Kaaba stone or black stone of Casper. Our ritual stipulates that you, in token of your sincerity, Seal your obligations by kissing the black stone of Casper. No doubt many times you have stated that you would not kiss anybody's hind parts to gain favor. Well, it seems that you have wanted to be a Shriner so bad that you are willing to kiss the black stone of Casper. Shame on you. And that's from phoenixfreemasonry.org, so they wouldn't do anything that would show Masons or Shriners in a bad light there. So that must be actually part of their ritual text. So similar to the Freemasons and the Hiram Abiff legend where he won't give up the secret word, so the three ruffians kill him. So they have something similar, the Shriners. It's a mock trial with a mock hanging Pretty interesting, right? And just a little trivia here. In Rosicrucianism, we learned that the mythical founder of Rosicrucianism, Christian Rosenkreutz, well, he supposedly studied at the city of Fez 
in Egypt. So that's a connection right there to the Rosicrucians, right? And from a book called Freemasonry on Trial, I found it online, and it is various authors, and they have a little bit about the shrine. You know, the shrine is much less written about than Freemasonry. It says, Masons use humanitarian activities to further covert goals. Masons, particularly groups like the Shrine, are known primarily for their humanitarian activities, i.e. children's hospitals. Certainly, we can all be thankful for such activities on behalf of these children and all needy persons, but unfortunately, this is not the whole issue, and a number of sources have questioned the use of funds donated for such causes. The South Haven, Michigan Daily Tribune of April 21, 1987, revealed that even though the Shrine is the richest charity in the nation, it gave its 22 hospitals for children less than one-third of the total amount collected from the public in 1984. The remainder was spent on travel, entertainment, fraternal ceremonies, fundraising, food, and so on. So in other words... The Shriners allegedly kept 71% of the $21.7 million raised. Circuses sponsored by the Shrine generated $23 million in 1985, but less than 2% went to the medical care of children. The Orlando Sentinel, this may be the one we read earlier, from June 29, 1986, ran a special four-part series on its six-month investigation into the Shrine charity expenditures confirming the above statistics through IRS records. Also, in 1984, the Shrine Hospital received only 1% of the estimated $17.5 million collected from Shrine Circuses. So that is a big difference, you know, than what we are led to believe and what I believed myself. But I've read since then that uh, there's been several hospitals closed, and they do charge... Now, So I don't know how that all works, but things apparently have changed. And I, I presume that part of this is due to Sandy Frost exposing the way these guys actually operate behind the scenes. From the book, The Occult Conspiracy, he's talking about the symbol of Shriners. You know, the uh, scimitar and the moon. He says, the symbol of the order is a crescent moon made from the claws of a Bengal tiger, engraved with a pyramid, an urn, and a pentagram. The crescent is suspended from a scimitar, and in the order is a representation of the universal mother, worshipped in ancient times as Isis. The horns of the crescent point downwards, because it represents the setting moon of the old faith at the rising of the sun of the new religion of the Brotherhood of Humanity. Again, that's The Occult Conspiracy, page 93. And in Ralph Epperson's book, you may remember Ralph Epperson because we talked about his works in the last couple of shows about Freemasonry. In New World Order, he says, Another Mason who approved of the merger, he's talking about the merger of the Bavarian Illuminati with Freemasonry because Adam Weishaupt, he wanted to join these Masons into the Illuminati and just kind of merge the two. He really liked the structure of the degrees and whatnot in Freemasonry and the secrecy as well. He says, Another Mason who approved the merger of the Bavarian Illuminati with Freemasonry was Dr. Walter M. Fleming, 
one of the four founders of the Shrine, or the Shriners, an organization that is part of the Masonic fraternity. He and three other Masons formed this organization in 1871, and he assisted in the preparation of a history of the Shrine in 1983. In that book, Dr. Fleming wrote, Among the modern promoters of the principles of the Order of the Shrine in Europe, one of the most noted was Herr Adam Weishaupt, professor of law at the University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria, who revived the order in that city on May 1st, 1776, May Day. Its members exercised a profound influence before and during the French Revolution when they were known as the Illuminati. Dr. Fleming was a 33rd degree Mason. He was recognized as the founder of the shrine. His quote comes from a book called Parade to Glory, written by Fred Van Deventer, which appears to be given to each new member of the shrine. Now, if you'll remember a few episodes ago, we quoted Anton LaVey from the book The Satanic Rituals, and in describing the initiation, or as he calls it, the rites of Lucifer, called Eler Epas in English, it's translated as the ceremony of the stifling air. LaVey wrote, A striking American parallel to this rite is enacted within the mosques of the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine, an order reserved for 32nd degree masons. The nobles have gracefully removed themselves from any implications of heresy by referring to the place beyond the devil's pass as the domain where they might worship at the shrine of Islam. And there's also another inner order called the Mystic Order of Veiled Prophets of the Enchanted Realm, or also called the Grotto. And I think it's interesting because LeVay actually called his hubs, if you will, his temples or whatever, grottos. Now, this may be symbolic in nature only, but when I'm looking up these Freemasonic tied organizations, I'd like to also take a look at certain words and phrases that they use and names that they use and look them up in Gematria and use the septenary cipher, which was popular with Albert Pike, and I think it's popular among Freemasons. And so I did that, and I typed in Jester. Well, Jester equals 32, and so does Freemason and Stonemason. Shriner, however, adds up to 33, and so does Rosy Croix, or Rose Cross. So think of that what you will. Now, one of the few articles I could still find by Sandy Frost from Op-Ed News, this dates back all the way to, let's see here, 5-13-2008, and it says, Shriners spin away, breakdown of spiritual order? Question mark. I won't read the whole thing, but she says, The Shriners seem to have launched a massive PR campaign, as well as settled a defamation lawsuit they filed against two whistleblowers right before the Ninth Worldwide Conference of Masonic Grand Lodges that is taking place from May 7th to 10th in Washington, D.C. Over 800 Masonic leaders will be joining the Grand Masters from over 100 countries for three days of sessions, receptions, and ceremonies for the first time in our nation's capital. Now bear with me here. She kind of gets into how the Masonic degrees work, and we've been over this stuff in the past, but we'll go over it quickly 
here just because it connects. She says, first, a man applies for membership at a local Masonic Lodge, also known as the Blue Lodge. Once accepted, he must pass the test and complete the rituals to advance through the three degrees to become a Master Mason. In North America, Masonic Lodges are grouped by state and are governed by one Grand Lodge. There is no Grand Lodge of America. Rather, the Grand Master of each state's Masonic Grand Lodge has supreme authority over all Masons in that state. Some international Grand Lodges oversee a country or a region. There are about 3 million Masons in North America and about 2 million worldwide. In North America, a Master Mason can branch out and join other appendant groups, such as the Scottish Rite, the Knights Templar, or the Shriners. Once a Master Mason becomes a Shriner, he joins the Red Fez-wearing fraternity of 350,000 or so men who meet in 191 North American temples. Though they are Master Masons, some seem to disconnect from and turn their back on Freemasonry and become Shriners first, who then dedicate their lives to overseeing and supporting their $13 billion network of 22 hospitals that provides free medical care to burned or crippled children at taxpayer expense. Both Shriners hospitals and fraternities are nonprofit groups that are overseen by their own board of directors, with some board members sitting on both boards at the same time for unlimited terms. This is more commonly called a conflict of interest. This joint board of directors calls the shots for both the Shriners hospitals and the fraternity. The imperial potentate is the leader of the fraternity, a Shriner who has risen up through the ranks, including the fraternity's governing body, the imperial divan, or divan, to serve a one-year term as he governs the 191 temples who, in turn, govern the 2,000 clubs under them. In February 2008, the Joint Boards published their newsletter, Between Sessions, that tells the world about the great job they are doing. The Shriners Hospitals for Children recently released Biomedical Research Highlights, Volume 2.1, in March 2008. In April 2008, Imperial Potentate Bernard Lemieux issued a statement about the most recent Joint Board meeting highlighting a consultant's plan to more efficiently structure Shriners' headquarters and how the board approved a new strategic action plan. On May 1, 2008, court documents were recorded after the Shriners settled a lawsuit instead of pursuing two whistleblowers for defamation. Why would the Shriners be working so hard on putting out the good word and getting rid of the defamation lawsuit before the world's Grand Masters meet in D.C.? Are they trying to wave their hands like Obi-Wan Kenobi and tell the Grand Masters these are not the headlines that you're looking for? Headlines? Who said anything about headlines? Well, before we go there, let's look at the Shriners' chain of command. Now, I think this is important to remember because we're talking about how this whole system works, and it is a system very much so. And remember, it's a system built upon secrecy and blood oaths, and that's why... If for no other reason, I call into question these secret fraternities. The ambitious Shriner can work his way up until he may be invited to join a secret Shrine subgroup called the Royal Order of Jesters, another nonprofit group with both charitable and fraternal components. 
The jesters claim that their fraternal exempt organization purpose is to spread the gospel of merriment and mirth. They also claim they deserve charitable status because they built a museum inside their new $1.2 million headquarters in Indianapolis, Indiana. Recent articles about the Royal Order of Jesters began on February 15, 2008, when I published Jesters Exposed. I was wrong, I guess. I thought it began in 2006. It asked, have the jesters hustled the feds by convincing them that raising money for partying is a legitimate exempt purpose because the IRS has had no problem classifying them as both a nonprofit fraternity and a charity? She says, this article described how the jester's executive director, Alex Rogers, submitted an application for property exemption for the new headquarters and how it was initially denied by the Marion County Assessor because they were not convinced that the jesters qualified as a charity based on the museum claims under Indiana law. The jesters appealed to the State Board of Tax Appeals and were granted the property tax exemption after convincing the state that they were an appendant body of masonry. She says her next article was titled, Jesters to Testify About Illegal Drugs, Illegal Child Prostitution, ran on March 6, 2008. This article described how 19 jesters were called as witnesses in a federal libel slander lawsuit to testify about their firsthand knowledge of prostitution, minor prostitution, use of illegal drugs, and or entry into an Indian reservation by share, and she says that is the plaintiff, and his or her customers while on a ROJ, Royal Order of Jesters, sanctioned fishing trip to Brazil. This article describes the testimony of underage girls provided to Brazilian authorities who are currently investigating the possibility that the girls were involved in child sex tourism. One of the girls claimed she was 13 at the time and was left pregnant. Three days later, on March 9th, the Buffalo News ran ex-judge target in interstate sex case. And she says that reporter Dan Herbick wrote, A retired state Supreme Court justice resigns his post as a hearing officer as federal agents investigate his alleged role in taking a local massage parlor worker across state lines for the purpose of prostitution. FBI and U.S. Border Patrol agents are investigating allegations that the retired judge, Ronald H. Tills, his former law clerk, and a retired police captain took the female massage parlor employee in a motorhome to a gathering of members of a nationwide group called the Royal Order of Jesters. Well, I mean, it's terrible for sure, and it's gross. But uh, if she was working in a massage parlor, uh, she probably knew what she was up for. But again, if she was underage or if she was trafficked in, that's a whole nother story. Now, we won't go too deeply into the Jesters and the Shriners' crimes or alleged crimes because I want to veer off that and kind of just get more into what they believe and their initiations and whatnot. But we'll read a little bit more of this. She says in her latest article at the time, it was titled, Judge, Central Figure in FBI Probe, the SoBib, and the Jesters' Half a Million Dollar Weekend Parties, which ran on April 12th, 2008. 
It reported how Judge Tills had become the focus of an investigation by the FBI, U.S. Attorney General's Office, and a human trafficking task force, and that he, along with Alex Rogers and Ralph Simb, chairman of the Board of Trustees for the Shriners Hospitals for Children, are members of a Jester's subgroup called the SOBIB. The acronym supposedly stands for Secret or Sacred Order of the Brothers in Blood. Tax returns show that the Jesters failed to report this subgroup on their tax returns and that, in 2004, the International Royal Order of Jesters spent, get this, $545,806 on one of their weekend celebrations of merriment and mirth otherwise known as the Book of the Play. So you might be asking, have the Shriners denounced any of the jesters involved in these prostitution, child sex, tourism, felony scandals? No. She says no. So there is some interesting stuff she gets into where the Shriners were investigated into biomedical research and trying to come up with this type of artificial skin for burn victims, which sounds great, right? But there's all kinds of shady ties and shady facts involved in it. Now, the book that I was able to find by her is called Vampires of Charity, but she continues that with another book called Pirates of Charity. And I have seen that on Scribd, and so I may indeed join and just get that book. And she goes on to explain how they went out of their way to protect them and try to get the attention off these shady dealings and alleged crimes. So that's another reason why I believe that she has all but disappeared and her work has all but disappeared on the Internet. I believe it was scrubbed for the most part, and you have to look really, really hard to be able to find it. Now, looking at this PDF I found, it's called the Fez Owner's Manual, a concise handbook for every Shriner. So I thought it was kind of cool because that way if you ever hear any of these terms, you'll know what they're talking about. So an ambassador is a noble appointed by a potentate to represent him and the temple at club and unit meetings and functions. The appointed divan, six nobles, appointed by the potentate to assist him during his term. They include the first ceremonial master, second ceremonial master, director, marshal, and captain of the guard, and outer guard. Black camel is the term used to refer to the death of a member of the Shriners fraternity. A cabaret, C-A-B-I-R-I, is a social organization composed of past potentates. So that would be like an organization of past masters if it was Freemasonry. Editorial without words. The image of a Shriner carrying a little girl and her crutches. This image originated from a photograph and has been reflected in statues, graphics, and other media as a symbol of the Shriners fraternity and Shriners hospitals for children. It is currently an important part of the visual identity of Shriners Hospitals for Children. So the elected divan, the collective name of the officers of a Shriners temple, the potentate, chief rabbin, assistant rabbin, high priest and prophet, 
Oriental Guide, Treasurer, and Recorder. The Imperial Council, the body of the representatives from each of the 191 temples which determines the direction of the fraternity. And the Imperial Divan is 13 officers elected by the Imperial Council to lead the Shrine Fraternity. The Imperial Sir, the title preceding the name of a Shriner who is serving or has served on the Imperial Divan. Then the Imperial Council Session, the Shriner's annual convention, generally held during the first week in July, the business of both fraternity and Shriners Hospitals for Children are conducted at that time. Also, there are parades, unit competitions, and social events during the session. An illustrious sir, the title preceding the name of a Shriner who is serving or has served as potentate of his temple. A noble refers to the member of a Shriners fraternity and is also the title preceding the name of any Shriner who is not a past or current potentate or who has not served on the Imperial Divan. The PCM is a permanent contributing member. The purchase of a $150 PCM certificate, which is tax-deductible as a charitable donation, relieves the noble from paying the annual $5 hospital assessment. Shrinedom, that's the realm of the Shrine Fraternity, including its members, governance, programs, activities, organizational, atmosphere, etc. Temple, any group of nobles chartered by or under dispensation of the Imperial Council. Temple, should not be used in the proper name of a group of Shriners. For example, the proper name for the first temple formed is Mecca Shriners, not Mecca Temple. And so it's got some other famous Shriners on here, and of course, Buzz Aldrin. Uh, we've got Richard Tyson, who was an actor, Arnold Palmer, the golfer. We've got Brad Paisley, the country music star, John Wayne, and the former Prime Minister of Canada, John Diefenbaker. Now, just like the Freemasons and the Rosicrucians, there's a couple different origin stories that surround the shrine and they're not really that interesting it's just a fact that albert mackey tells a different story about the origins of the shrine then as does fleming and the actual guys who started the shrine so it's a little bit murky how they started but it's really not that sexy yeah and back to sobib this secret order of brothers in blood i found a little blurb about them it says, Sobib is an invitation-only order of jesters, truly exclusive, with just 254 active members as of 2008. Few in number, this handful of men nevertheless dominate the jesters, and therefore the shrine. Since its creation in 1979, all but one royal director has belonged to Sobib. Please check out the show notes, guys. I've got tons of notes about this stuff, too. I was looking at the jesters, so their initiation ritual, at least one of them, which is available in my show notes, uh, they act out this play, which is essentially a trial because they're trying the person who killed or the people who killed William Shakespeare. That's the whole theme of the thing. And there's a line in there that says, 
And there's a line in there that says, anybody can stand by you when you're right. A jester stands by you even when you are wrong. So I just thought that was kind of interesting, seeing how they've been in quite a bit of trouble. Let's see here. Um, and here's another part from Act 1. I just thought it was kind of interesting. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. It says, Though all the world's a stage, still you all knew. You did not come to see a puppet show. This is rehearsal time. The actors, they are not themselves, but just the parts they play. Their motley's on, their faces smudged with paint. Yet of times the sinner plays the saint. I pray you, judge among them, mark them well. Some you may consign to heaven, others send headlong into hell. I leave to you to cast the die, mine's not to ask the reason why. So let the curtain quickly rise, the play is ready before your eyes. I don't know, I mean, it's probably just one of those silly things that they do in their rituals, but... I couldn't help but think about politics in general and a lot of things that we see in the public eye being nothing more than theater, you know, political theater, social theater. All right, guys, this concludes Freemasonry's Greatest Hits, Volume 2. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I hope you got something out of it. As always, I think this is going to get us set up for the next couple of shows. And then after that, we'll probably hit back up with the Those We Don't Speak Of series in case, unless something comes up between now and then and catches my attention. I want to thank you very much for listening. Please share the show. Tell others about the show. Especially, I want to thank my patrons, and I'll get right to thanking them right now. I want to thank KF. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. Thank you, That Crazy Bread Man, for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. Check out all of Ruckus's content on alternatecurrentradio.com as well as TNT Radio. Thank you, Mark, from Housatonic Live. Please check out Mark's work. It does fantastic work, especially about COVID. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, for being a covert co-conspirator. Get on over to Twitter at We've Read and check out John's content. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. You can find Jack's shows on all your fine podcasting platforms. I also want to thank Alternate Current Radio, my podcasting family. Get over to alternatecurrentradio.com for all your podcasting needs as well as your musical needs. Also, I want to thank Fringe Radio Network for carrying the show as well. Love you guys. Lord willing, I'll be back soon. Cheers and blessings, and remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.